Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 159. If we take out a map of South Africa and reconsider the regions, it will become quite apparent that the main demarcation is geographical, geological. The main points of references are the rivers and the mountains, the deserts, the semi-deserts, the subtropics, the good soils and the bad. Take a look at the map of the region to the southwest of the Drakensberg, for it's this area, way down to the orange and extending towards the Galauri and the Richtersveld, that we're going to focus on a little in this episode. There's a direct correlation between the British seizing Natal from the Boers in 1843 and the effect on the Basutu, the Krikwa and the Batlokwa, amongst others. The four trekkers who refused to take an oath of allegiance to the British Queen Victoria trekked back over the Drakensberg, and it was the vast majority. Some of these would turn north, some southwest. Most headed back south when not going where they began, the Cape Colony, but to try and negotiate or seize land between the Cape and Natal. This was not empty land, and I'm going to explain what happened after 1843, after the English flag began to flutter from the fort in Durban. Slow as wagon travel was, the speed with which the Boers had spread themselves across so much of southern Africa in such a short time had taken everyone by surprise. Six years. The Cape governors were totally unprepared for this migration. Their narrative had been that these Europeans would find inland Africa far too unforgiving and then they'd return to the Cape where they'd settle down and pay taxes. When they left in the late 1830s, Cape Governor Sir Benjamin Durbin was anxious, his successor Sir George Napier even more so. The Boers trundled into the interior and directly into the seething hinterland, shattered as it had been by Mzilikatsi, Shaka, the Batlokwa and of course the Krikwa and the Bastard Raiders who travelled like the Boers on horses with hats and guns. The Vitkani had already exploded across the subcontinent. Refugees had been trickling or flooding into the Cape. Take the Amamfengu, for example. So when the die-hard trekkers left Natal in 1843 and rolled back southwest of the Drakensberg, they were going to be part of a further destabilizing influence. You must consider the governors in Cape Town regarding and reading the reports of clash after clash, first the Boer women and children murdered along the Vaal, then the Bushman rivers, then the Amandabeli women and children murdered by the trekkers and the expulsion of Mzilikatsi, then Dingana's death and battles against this half-brother Mpande. Imagine for a moment... That you're in the governor's house back in the cosmopolitan Cape. It's whitewashed farmhouses and rows of vineyards. It's organized wheat and barley fields. A semblance of order, like a sea of tranquility on the edge of a wild and unruly continent. The Great Trek proper as we know it lasted from 1836 to 1840. But trekking had started from late in the 17th century and continued long after 1840. It's just that the flood between these years was the greatest. More than 7,000 Boers had founded communities with a republican form of government beyond the Orange and Vaal rivers, these emigrants. From this moment onwards, the Cape Colony ceased to be the only European community in South Africa, though it was the most predominant for many years still. The Transorangia territory was contested long before the Boers rolled into this area, and their coming just increased competition yeah, the Basutus, the San, the Griqua, and others fought each other and the Boers, and sometimes with the Boers against each other. Missionaries who built stations like the one at Kuruman often took the side of the black residents against the Boers, and a number of treaty states were to emerge where the Cape government, 
on the advice of the missionaries, began to sign these agreements with these non-Dutch-speaking peoples. They were particularly concerned about the Boers, like Jan Mok, born in Graaf Reinet in 1806. He was a fiery Republican, a man who believed in the inalienable right to seize whatever land he wanted because the Voortrekkers, in his eyes, were the anointed people. In October 1842, Jan Mok and his followers trekked out of the Cape and promptly erected a beacon at Alaman's Drift on the banks of the Orange River and then proclaimed a republic. Officials were appointed to preside over the whole area between the Caledon and the Vaal rivers. Riding back from the drift, they informed Chief Lepoy and Independent Chief at Patuli that the land was now Boer property and that he and his people were subject to Boer laws. They also decided that the crops which had been sown by these people for the season would be reaped by the Boers, and they even uprooted a peach tree in the garden of a mission station as indication of their ownership. In the northeast, they began to drive Mushweshwe's people away from the springs, their only source of water. Mushweshwe then appealed for protection directly to the Queen of England, but he soon discovered that he would have to organize his own resistance. Jan Mok had rushed to help the Boers in Durban when Captain Smith arrived and was horrified when it became clear that the Volksrat was going to negotiate with the English. As a commandant, Mok and the others of the war party attempted to induce the Volksrat not to submit, and when they were submitting, he formulated a plan to murder Andres Pretorius and other Boer leaders because of this negotiating. One of the reasons why I've spent so much time focusing on the trials and tribulations of the Trekkers and the Amazulas, as well as the British in Natal, is because of what effect Trekkers like Mok have on our story. Aware of Mok and others who were talking war and violence, the British signed their first treaty state in Transoranja with Griqualand West in 1843. Subsequent states were recognized, which made the northern frontier a little more secure, at least on paper. Meanwhile, the stability of the eastern frontier was an illusion because the Cape government was completely unable to police disputes between the Amakosa and the settlers. It wasn't going to be long before another clash broke out, pitting British soldiers against Amakosa warriors. For those back in Cape Town, the uncouth frontier was distant and the main players there rough and uncivilized. The colony was visibly developing, a road network was being hewn from the mountains and the dry riverbeds, schools were improving, many farmers were now shifting to raising sheep for wool and meat, which was accelerating profits, and the original agricultural practices of wheat growing and cattle rearing and winemaking was going well. Monitoring all of this was Dr. John Phillip, who had already predicted quite a bit of the chaos across the Orange when he gave evidence before the Aborigines Committee in London in 1835. Its findings were released in 1837. Philip had told the committee that the British should take control of southern Africa as far north as the tropics, and thus, and I quote, making the interests of the natives the grand policy of our conduct. Folks need a goal in life. And Philip's goal was to serve what he saw as the interests of black South Africans under immediate pressure from the Boers. And this became his last great campaign of his life. It's one thing to hang around in Cape Town or London pontificating, but it's totally another to travel to these places on the frontier, so pressurized by conflict. So naturally, Dr. Philip prepared his oxen and wagons and did precisely that. Between 1841 and 1842, he trekked through Transorangia into the Free State, including the Eastern Free State, where the Greek was in the Bastards, as well as the Basutu were mixing together. He followed the rutted wagon trails of the Boers to see for himself what was going on. 
He visited the Boers at their homes and settlements north of the Orange and realized pretty swiftly just how threatening they were to his Cape to Tropical Africa master plan. So it was in his interest to talk up the fragility of the African states versus the virility of the Boer musket, the horse and the wagon, and he was prone to exaggeration. Fears were also growing amongst the missionaries and Cape officials that the Dutch farmers in the Cape would rally to the call of their kinsmen in the Transorangia region, in Natal, and across the Waal, and of course they had. The men of the cloth believed there must be a blood loyalty between these people. They'd sally forth from the Cape to join their brothers and sisters overrunning the black states like the Basutu. By now, the trekkers had spread themselves on the Haarfeld to the north and south of the Vaal River. If we peer at the territory south of the Vaal in 1843, we'd have found the Griqua and the Basutu ruling here, although much of the territory appeared empty. So Philip spent a lot of time here during his own personal trek because it was the Boers' main transit. We also realized that those who controlled the heights of Basutu land and the passage across the Drakensberg would hold a vital route of communication. The coastal road past the Amatembu and into Natal was far more difficult to traverse. There were hundreds of rivers and the escarpment was steep, the ravines virtually impassable. The berg is a natural fortress and it would be almost impossible to dislodge anyone from these heights. So the concept of a formidable Boer state emerging here, controlling the land and cutting off any further expansion by the British from the Haarfeld down to the Indian Ocean became a possibility. Because the Eastern Cape was not at war, despite the tensions between settlers and the Amakosa, Sir George Napier's nervous glance shifted to Transorangia. When Natal was annexed by the British in 1843, all they did was move the problem of the Boers from one side of the Drakensberg to the other by driving them back into the Haarfeld. What had emerged to startle the British was the power of the voices of poor women. They had seen the resistance of their husbands weakening. They had heard the disparate arguments, the egos where their men had come to blows after a couple of brandies, and told British officials to their faces that they'd walk out of Natal barefoot across the Drakensberg if necessary to die in freedom. As author Noel Mostad points out, the Boer women, like Amakosa women, who'd also been busy stiffening their men's spines, were a force that could never be ignored. They were active, demanding, and the handmaidens to their history. And so it was, almost as if written in a scripture, and lo, the Boer women and their men did trek en masse back across the Drakensberg Gap, back into Transorangia and the Vaal. We must be fully aware of what this meant. These were people who'd fought repeated wars against various empires, the Amandabeli, the Amazulu, the English, and they were back in the Transorangia. They had travelled with their grievances against the black empires, against the British Empire. However, their most bitter antagonism was not against the Amazulu or the Amandabeli. No, they recognised these people were fighting for their land. It was against the British, the accursed English, the bitterness from here on took on an extreme form. It was part of daily prayers. They became fixated by what they regarded as rampant British imperialism and unfairness. It's hard for many to fathom these days in the 21st century post-apartheid in a land so riven by what seems to be race-based antagonisms that back in 1843, by far the most caustic, acrimonious, begrudging and irreconcilable emotions were those felt by the Boers against the British. Their anti-British sentiments were fixed, although on an individual basis the two people seemed to get along. When deserting British soldiers appeared in their midst, Boer mothers and fathers were not averse to their daughters 
marrying these men. If you remember, I've already explained in a previous episode how some of the British who deserted during the siege of Durban were well treated by Boer leaders. So Dr. Philip rolled through this landscape and became more and more worried as his wagons bumped along the tracks through the Transorangia and the Transvaal. He remarked on the Boer hatred of the English, fearing that they would continue to infuse it into their children from generation to generation. The Boers, for their part, held memorials regularly to reinforce the messages through prayer, reinforcing emotions and their political and social view. Hatred of the English was intertwined with the hatred of the missionaries, who they saw as viscerally anti-Boer. The fact that both were Christian appeared lost in the mists of rage. But we must see this clearly. The Boers' immigration was an exodus to the promised land. The British government was pharaoh. The missionaries were the pharaoh's yes-men. Minions of Satan, servants of the dark lord, not their lord. After attending one of these memorial services, Dr. Philip wrote that the Boers expressed that Having torn ourselves loose from the British government and departed from our motherland, where we had been libeled, pestered, and humiliated, we made our way through wilderness with our wives and children to settle on a piece of land which was quite untamed. He listened well and wrote down their view. Here we thought the air of independence might be breathed, but after we had sacrificed everything, not just possessions, but blood as well, did we find that our sacrifices had been quite fruitless. We were once again obliged to set out into the world to look for a piece of land and to discover where one may find peace and achieve independence. This, in a few lines, was the sum total of the great trick in a nutshell. The Boers began to concentrate on the Haarfeld and across the Orange, but for many the crucial state remained Natal. They had gained bloody victories over the Amazulu there. Blood River was their covenant a lasting affirmation of God's great plan for the Boers, part of their exodus narrative, his support of them in smiting the Philistines, the heathens, their dark enemies. Jan Mok was one of these men on the extreme edge of this sentiment. This was the start, the birth of the patriotism that burned deep in their minds, harsh in its principles and judgments about people, repeated through the 19th and then the 20th century, forged by individual action, and yet a tribal loyalty. This, despite the fact that the Boers tended to quarrel divisively amongst themselves, which didn't help matters when the chips were down. There's always a contradiction built into any history after all. Case in point, Andres Pretorius could not stand Hendrik Potkita. Their followers came to blows. When the English seized Durban, Potkita had given Pretorius a middle finger when the latter asked for help in defeating the hated English. Moke had felt obligated to help the Boers besiege the British at Durban, then planned to kill his own commander for what he saw as a sellout. It's really important too to understand what the Cape Colony Dutch speakers thought about all of these goings-ons. The Boers who remained back in the Cape, the non-Furtrekkers, became drawn into the British Empire's system, its education, justice and parliamentary traditions. While they sympathized with their relatives to the north, they regarded the Trekkers' concept of the rule of law as conflicted. The Cape Dutch were more cosmopolitan, more urbane, richer, and had been inducted into the liberal educational values of the 1840s. Isolated on the high plateau in the north and across the Orange River, the Boers of the north distanced themselves from these values. They became even more remote than even their Trek Boer grandfathers and great-grandfathers who'd experienced the delights of Cape Town only a few decades earlier. 
They were so far away, starting from the time of the great trick, most never visited the metropolitan centre of any world ever again. As we stand back for a second and think about this, you can also see how for the British this was very alarming. Suddenly the British taxpayer was coughing up extra moolah for Natal, where there were a handful of truculent rebellious Boers still living, and a handful of cunning and ruthless English adventurists living amongst probably 100,000 Amazulu people. The fact that these 100,000 happened to make up the most disciplined and military-minded black nation in Africa at the time made their political tensions back in England far worse. But across the Orange River and towards the country where Mushweshwe and the Basutu lived, there were a whole bunch of other issues going on. It was time, said Dr. Philip, to start signing formal treaties with the peoples here, the Griqua, the Basutu and others. The Boers, he believed, were a write-off. They would never sign a treaty with the British, so the British needed to concentrate on non-Boers. Lord Stanley, the Secretary for War and Colonies, was not going to fall into a missionary-led trap, however. Each treaty would be carefully worded to exclude military operations. There would be no military op, he said, at a distance from the settled parts of the colony. How distant, he did not say. Then, as the British began signing treaties with the Griqua and others, the Boers responded. In April 1844, the Potchefstroom Boers, along with the Winbergers, formally established a new state, free and independent, with a constitution of 33 articles designated for an agricultural community and excluding all non-whites. It was more an elementary guide to litigation and punishment than a constitution, and ironically quite similar to the Greek state's constitution, individual rights by people who had no taste for governing or being governed. Hendrik Potkita chafed under the new laws, and, as intolerant as ever when it came to basic restraints, he remained in the state for a little more than a year before he was off once more, moving his headquarters to Andries Urgestad, hundreds of kilometers north. The Transorangia region, and the Caledon Valley in particular, was going to experience significant change in the 1840s, heading towards a war that would start between Boer and Basutu within a decade. Owing to the severe disorder and conflict in the central Orange River Valley, the trekkers who first headed across the Orange into the southern Caledon Valley claimed to have encountered only bands of sand. It was otherwise empty, they thought. Mushweshe and his Basutu were living along what was called the Berea Plateau in the north to the missionary headquarters at Maria in the south. A map published by the French missionary Casali at the time showed this southern Basutu border and happened to include the territory far into what later became the Orange Free State. Abu Say, another missionary, drew up a map a few years later showing Basutu predominance to the south, including the confluence of the Caledon and Orange Rivers. By 1840, Mushweshwe had managed to convince Lieutenant Governor Andri Stockenström to formally regard all settlers east of the Orange as Basutu subjects. This was further validated in 1843 by the Napier Line. A treaty was signed in that year that gave British recognition to Basutu claims to the eastern third of the Orange Free State, or virtually all of what later became known as the Conquered Territory. What the Trekkers really believed was empty territory was not. There were Basutu here, who had fled the Griqua and Korana, who had been threatening Mushweshwe for five years. The major disagreement was what signified a boundary and ownership. If you've listened to the series, you'll know by now that the European notions of nation, sovereignty and boundary and their attachment to land had no counterpart in African political culture in this region. Effective occupation and production of the land was the crucial factor in what was a complex network of seniority, 
kinship, alliance, tribute, and military dominance that regulated politics among local chiefly states. So when the Boers rolled into the Caledon, they remarked at how bereft of people it appeared. No one was there, therefore they could seize the land. What facilitated this view was Mushueshwe's initial generous and lenient attitude. He'd seen others come and go. There was nothing to worry about. These Boers would trundle through, and he'd go back to running his territory, fighting off those who sought to settle where necessary. However, the Boers were not going to move, and this is where a major discrepancy in systems developed. When the Boers paid the normal going rate in horses and cattle to Mushueshwe, it signified to the Basutu that the Boers were accepting Mushueshwe's power they were now living under his authority. Of course, to the Boers and then the British, the payment of horses and cattle meant they were buying the land from Mushweshwe. This misconception had already ruined many a good relationship between the first settlers in Albany and the Amakosa. The new Boer constitution indicated something else. They refused to live amongst the Basutu as subjects of Mushweshwe, and in their letters to the British in the Cape, their terms of settlement continued to contain European ideas of proprietorship. And there's the rub, as they say. Even more strikingly, each time a farmer bought land from the Basutu through cattle and horses, and the Basutu regarded the farmer as answerable to Mashweshwe, the land was listed as part of the growing territory of the Orange Free State. It became part of the extension of the Volksrat's power. The title deeds and the finances just out of interest were actually mostly sourced from Port Elizabeth, hundreds of kilometers away to the southeast. Neither Mushweshwe nor his vassals ever recognized the validity of these title deeds. He'd signed the treaty with the British to buy himself time not to accept that they now owned his land. This was setting everything up for a clash in the future. Next episode, we'll spend time riding amongst the peoples of the Orange River from the Caledon down to the Atlantic Ocean. Remarkable things were going on. If you can rate the podcast on iTunes or any other of your favorite platforms, it helps elevate the visibility. And you can head off to desmondlatham.blog where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can also email me from there. Until next, Totsits. Thank you.